Welcome to season two of Nuances Beyond First Impressions with the Asian Diaspora. Together, we wanted to create a safe space where everyone can learn more about our diverse communities, the complicated relationships we have with our culture, and how they intersect with feminism, queerness, disability, anti-racism, career choices, politics, and more. I'm Ariadne Mila, a Filipino-American from a small town on the southern border of Texas. And I'm Sherilyn Lee, a.k.a. Lazu, a new American originally from the only place a dodo bird ever lived, Mauritius. If you are new to the show, our format includes definitions of terms that may be unfamiliar, our guest interview, and finally our takeaways from the interview. You can find these definitions and takeaways in the show notes as well as on our website. Today's terms are pansexual and ableism. Someone who is pansexual is attracted either emotionally or physically or both to all genders. This includes cisgender, transgender, agender, and gender nonconforming individuals. Ableism is discrimination against disabled people in favor of able-bodied people. Today we are here with Masaru Tanabe, a 34-year-old disabled trans non-binary Japanese-American fiber artist. Contracting the H1N1 swine flu virus in 2009 left them with ME-CFS, a post-viral syndrome which, combined with their genetic disability of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, has left them so disabled that they are now unable to work. They now spend their time making and selling fiber art online and bringing awareness about disability issues, anti-Asian hate crimes, and trans right issues. Masaru, thank you so much for being here. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. Maybe we can t- start with your background. Tell us whatever you want. Okay. Like I was born in a suburb of Chicago. We moved from Chicago to Gresham, Oregon. We moved to Sherwood when I was in third grade, and then I was there all the way through high school. I went to University of Oregon in Eugene, and now I live in uh, the Portland area. So what was that like growing up in all those places as a Japanese-American? Rough. Starting in the third grade was when the racism began for me. The third grade is about when one is typically about eight years old. That was when the racism started pretty hardcore. That was because you moved to a new town? Yeah, I want to say it was because we moved and I was new. I was one of three or four other Asian kids in my school at the time. And the other kids were born and raised there. And I was the new face. I was the new kid. And all of the other kids who were mostly white kids made fun of me in all the worst ways. I can go into details if you'd like. It's brutal. It's really up to you what you want to share or not. I am more than happy to go into it. I'm more than happy to go into it. So on my first day of third grade, I remember in very vivid detail how that went. It was before the days of glasses for me. I had my hair up in these little pigtails and I was wearing this purple Disney shirt, these little faded jeans. I think they had a flower motif on the back pocket and I had these tennis shoes on, one of those Columbia backpacks that had the reflector on the back of it. I think it was even monogrammed or my name on it or something. (laughs) My dead name, by the way, Masaru is a chosen name, but yeah, I had my name on it. I went to school and immediately Almost immediately, kids were saying my last name funny. 
They were doing the slant eye gesture at me. They were pointing and laughing at me. When the teacher wasn't looking, they were saying ching chong at me. All kinds of weird things. And I had no idea what the heck was going on. I nervous laughed because I wasn't sure what was happening around me. This went on all day. I didn't use the bathroom all day because I was just so focused on my schoolwork and on everything else around me and on making friends and everything and just trying to do school. I get home, take my shoes off. I put my book bag at the foot of the staircase and I go upstairs. I go into my bedroom and I go to the bathroom. When I opened the door, I'm greeted by this giant mirror in front of me and I see my reflection and a giant slap in the face. Boom. It hit me. I saw my reflection. I saw my eyes and it just hit me. And I knew immediately what it was that happened to me all day. I just sunk to the floor and cried because all of a sudden I understood. Wow. It's rough. And it never stopped. That was the thing that kept happening every single day. I got that every single day for years. It never stopped. Did they do it to the other Asian kids too? I don't know. I have no idea. I know that they did it to me. That's crazy. How do people teach their kids to be so hateful at eight yeah. years old? Yeah. Wow. yeah, I mean, there's worse stuff that happened in eighth grade. I've got a really bad one, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say such things on this podcast. Our podcast is rated explicit, so you can say whatever you want. <laughs> Okay, because there was one time in eighth grade where I was doing a math assignment on a board and this kid was picking on me and I kept asking him to stop. I was just trying to mind my own business and doing my assignment in front of my math teacher. She was sitting right there and this kid very loudly called me a stupid Jap bitch in front of her. And my teacher did absolutely nothing. She just looked at me and said, maybe you did something to deserve it. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I took it to my dad and my dad threatened to sue the school if something wasn't done. I honestly don't even know if anything was done. I have no recollection, if I'm going to be completely honest. How do kids even learn those phrases, those slurs? I can't imagine where, as a kid, you would pick that up. I have no clue. My guess is parents. What kind of people are they recruiting to teach in schools? I know. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. In my AP US history class, we were going over World War II, and it was not in the curriculum to go over the Japanese internment. They just skipped over it? Uh-huh. They were just going to skip over it. And I had to raise my hand as the one Japanese American student in my class. I raised my hand and was like, excuse me, can we go over this, please? I think you're missing something. Yeah. And I know I pissed off my teacher because he got really red in the face and he got really annoyed. And he's it's not in the curriculum. And I was like, do you think it should be? Maybe. Do you want to take at least like a few minutes to maybe mention it? Did he? Yes, he did. He took some time and went over it a little bit, but that was, yeah. Wow. Good for you for speaking up, though. Yeah. It's just annoying that I had to say something. It's like, yeah. really? Because yeah. I'm even trying to think back on if they went over that in my school. And if they did, it was very briefly because there was a lot of focus on World War II, Christopher Columbus. There's so much that was censored. The bad parts were so watered down. It feels like so much of what we learned was just U.S. propaganda. Absolutely. Absolutely is. I agree. So where had you learned about this? Was that from your family? Did they teach you that 
history beforehand? Absolutely, it was. Basically, as soon as I learned how to read and my Japanese grandparents learned that I knew how to read, they were like, fantastic, here's all these books. And they just shuffled all these books about World War II, Japanese internment, all these things for me to read. And as soon as they knew that I could understand certain concepts, they started teaching me about all kinds of things. And yeah, it's pretty cool. My Japanese grandparents were a huge impact on me growing up, teaching me things about our family, Japanese culture, Japanese American culture. My grandpa served in the military intelligence service after World War II. And my grandma, she was the youngest of 10 kids. Both of their families immigrated from Japan, from Hiroshima to Hawaii. And I, I know I'm saying it wrong. I know it's supposed to be Hawaii. But funny enough, when I was young, my grandparents and my dad insisted that I say Hawaii that way. I hate that they insisted that I say it that way for the benefit of the mainlanders, because otherwise they won't know what I'm talking about, in quotes, because they didn't want me to be bullied further. That was the reason, unfortunately. And then my grandma, she had two older brothers that served in the 442nd, and both of them taught me a lot about our family history, Japanese American culture and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, They took a lot out of their time to just teach me. And I just soaked it up like a sponge as best as I could. So was that strange um, for you to be taught this at home, but then what you're taught in school is completely disjointed from what your grandparents are teaching you? Did that feel very weird to you? Like, at what point did you notice, hey, there's something not lining up here? It was odd. I started to connect the dots very quickly. And looking back on it now, I think the reason why I caught on quickly might be because I'm also autistic. I was just able to connect the dots and see the disconnects and oh I see what's happening here oh I see this is what we call whitewashing the whitewashing of our history from your conversations with your grandparents what was your impression of their attitude and feeling towards America? Did they feel like they belonged here? Because obviously, if they served in the military, they wanted to defend this country and they wanted to contribute to the prosperity of America. But also yeah. at the same time, clearly they had some reservations about the whole whitewashing that was going on. So how do you think they felt what their place was in the U.S.? Very complicated, obviously. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to have a whole lot of these conversations with my grandpa because he passed before I was able to have a lot of these deeper conversations with him. But my grandma is still here, and I've been able to have a lot of these conversations with her. When she was young, unfortunately, the colonizing evangelicals got to her when she was 10. And her parents were Buddhist. The evangelicals went to her parents and were like, would it be all right if your youngest daughter went to our Sunday school? And her parents went, oh, yes, anything about Kami-sama is good. Kami-sama meaning God. 
and not understanding what this would mean. Of course, she got indoctrinated and colonized hard and got put into this belief that her parents would go to hell. It ended up putting this horrible rift between her and her parents. Now, later in life, she doesn't believe any of that stuff anymore, and she has a lot of regrets now. At the time, during the war and everything, there was a lot of this stuff about needing to prove one's loyalty, needing to protect your family, needing to try and safeguard yourself because what else can you do? It's either that or you and your family could end up dead. Right. When seen as traitors. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about navigating the LGBTQIA plus space. I know we talked a little bit about it with Edmund. I'd love to hear what your experience has been like. Yeah, I've been out as pansexual for a while since high school. And I want to say luckily because of the location that I'm in, Oregon is a very queer friendly place. In high school, it was a little touchy and just touch and go. I don't really have much memory of it because my memory from that time period is just really fuzzy. In college, U of O was very queer friendly. Pride flags everywhere. For Pride Month, we would have these big events with booths and stuff everywhere in our big commons area outside. And we would have chocolate-shaped things, if you get my meaning, snacks and candies, and we could eat them out in public and it would be fine. Nobody had a problem with any of that. Where I have found issue, though, has been here in Portland within queer activist spaces. That has been the biggest issue as far as having my voice heard. It seems to be specifically within predominantly white queer spaces, Anytime that I've wanted to voice an opinion or an idea within any kind of activist space where it's very LGBTQ plus heavy, the only time where I feel like my voice is heard is either when a white presenting ally or accomplice either speaks up for me to make way for my voice, or I have to rehash trauma in order for my voice to be heard. And that's a problem. Yeah. I've had a lot of really big disagreements recently, even within a close knit queer white space that I thought was full of people that were allies and turned out that they weren't. And that was really rough. And these were people that we knew in person, but this was like a conversation that took place over a chat. My spouse and I both have background in martial arts and self-defense. My spouse's name is Nick, and my spouse is a white-presenting Jewish person. Both of us are currently holding classes specifically for the AAPI community here in Portland, and it takes place in a park for a two and a half hour period every Tuesday over a six-week period. We had a disagreement with this one person who is also non-binary like I am. For this class, we had to join forces with this other martial arts group to market our class because we didn't know how to market ourselves to get word out to the community. This person decided to take it upon themselves to speak for the Black community in the area. And I'll say it again. They took it upon themselves to speak for the Black community in the area because of their proximity to the community, because they live in the area, nothing more. And they insisted that our group 
of seven Asian Americans, that's including me, and the one white presenting person, my spouse, being in the park over a six week period every Tuesday for two and a half hours was going to add to the gentrification of the neighborhood. I'll let that sink in for a second. And so they wanted us to consider finding a different park, even though that the park was extremely accessible, close to a hospital, was flat, had working bathrooms, was very diverse. My spouse had told them which park we were going to be going to a full month before the classes began. During our argument, this person doubled down and I got them to basically admit that they believed that Asians are just another brand of white person. So basically admitting, perpetuating the model minority myth. Yeah. Oh my God. And the whole thing was a disaster. It was a nightmare. Wow. It's a lot of mental gymnastics to make that sentence <laughs> make sense. I know. I'm still kind of working through. I'm not really oh. sure how that works. This is, and this is a, a public park. Yeah. And it's not like you're installing yourselves perpetually. You're using the right. park for six weeks. What? Yeah. Not only that, it wasn't even all of us every week either. A lot of the time, only three people would show up or two people would show up. Heck, the last time, only one person was able to make it because of the heat and somebody wasn't feeling good or people were just out of town. Not a whole lot of us were there a lot of the time. Someone explain to me how this is gentrification. I kept asking throughout that entire conversation, how is this gentrification? My spouse the whole time, like talking to me in person, you know, was like, I get it. I get that I'm white presenting, but I'm not like the forest god from Princess Mononoke, where every step I take, oh, there's a Whole Foods. Oh, there's a new seasons. That's not how this works. And also, it's so weird that historically, we have been tagged as less than and actually bringing value down. And now all of a sudden, they're claiming that we're raising prices of real estate by being in a party. Like, what? That makes no sense. And not only that, but this is coming from a white person, white person who lives in the neighborhood. So a white person talking for black people about gentrification in this neighborhood, us who are in this park temporarily from a white person who is actively living in the neighborhood. Someone make this make sense. And then later, after getting their butt chewed out by another member in the same group, the same person wanted to apologize to me, to which I asserted myself and I was like, you know what, I don't want an apology from them. They get to have no further access to me. And frankly, I don't want an apology. They don't get to have that closure from me. They're not allowed. They don't get that from me. Yeah. Because they doubled down. They had a chance. Because they did. I gave them a chance to be better and then they doubled down and tripled down and they chose not to. So no, they don't get to make peace with me. They wanted the Godzilla in my soul. So now they get the Godzilla in my soul. That's just what they <laughs> get now. Yeah. 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 How has it been with your family? Has that been an issue at all? It actually hasn't been that bad with my family. I'm very blunt by nature. Again, because autistic. And I think I get that from my dad. I'm going to be completely honest. He's also pretty blunt too, when it comes to these kinds of things. I'm about as subtle as Godzilla stomp. I'm just very blunt with my family. When I came out, I was very like nervous about it, but I just, just came out with it. I just sat them down. I'm like, so this is what's going on. Boom. And just told them and 
waited and we just talked about answered questions. I provided them with reading material in the event that they wanted to understand more, especially for my dad. My dad is the Japanese parent and I provided him with the reading material. I don't have my dad on my Facebook, but I have my mom on my Facebook. So she sees the memes and the information that I'll post there. And for my dad, I'll text him a lot and I'll send him TED Talks or YouTube videos or articles and stuff like that. And so he'll see that. Yeah, it's been pretty good as far as that kind of understanding. The only really bad blowback I've ever had and the only really bad transphobia I've experienced so far was a distant cousin of mine, which was really unfortunate because we were in the process of reconnecting and he decided to be passive aggressively cruel about it on social media. And I confronted him via text message and then he got really aggressive with me over text message, which frankly, I don't think he should have done because I am very well liked among the rest of my family. And he's the one who is trying to reconnect with the rest of the family. I'm not. So he made quite the faux pas by doing that because screenshots are a thing, buddy. So when he did that, you better believe that I screenshotted that and I sent it to everybody and was like, just so you know, he said this to me. Yeah. And yeah, that didn't end well for him. (laughs) Yeah. That's great to hear that your family was very supportive and you're able to have those conversations with your parents. That's really awesome. Yeah, I have to say that I'm I'm very aware of how fortunate and lucky I am in that regard. And I think that because of how my dad's particular upbringing was with his folks and everything, growing up partially on a military base in Sendai and then in Oahu, California, and then in Chicago, all these different places, his exposure to so many different people, I think that helped him. He, along with my mom, they're able to be very accepting and very open-minded. So I think that's helped a lot to be Mm -hmm. able to accept me for me, which is very nice. And now I'm getting emotional. (laughs) It's awesome. I love hearing. It's it's great. Yeah. So one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about is the disabled community. Have you felt that your ethnicity has affected your place in the disabled community at all? I would say that it has, specifically with medical professionals, it definitely has impacted me more so than within the community itself, in that I find that I get infantilized a lot for some reason. And I think it comes down to the whole model minority myth thing. I think the whole like, we're submissive and et cetera, et cetera, and There's this weird concept that perhaps I just don't know enough about my own conditions that I must not have an understanding about my own disabilities for some reason. It's really bizarre and really obnoxious early on when I was first dealing with my disabilities and specifically when I was dealing with Providence, my initial insurance provider. I had to spend an extremely intensely long amount of time researching my own conditions a lot in order for me to be taken seriously. And it was really obnoxious. And of course, back then I was going off of what I thought I knew. And this was before I knew more accurately what my conditions were. 
of course, now I have a much stronger voice than I did back then. So now I'm taken a lot more seriously, which is nice. I have a much more assertive voice. I'm not considered to be submissive, so people don't necessarily think I'm a pushover. A lot of the time when I'm talking about my conditions, my disabilities, and I'm explaining what's going on with me, I tend to take this very assertive tone with people. And a lot of folks, some of my friends have given this particular tone a name. They've called it the Masaru Stomp. (laughs) It's just a way that I assert myself in order to let people know that I am not a model minority and that I refuse to be pushed around. I'm not going to be pushed around anymore. I might be a person that uses a mobility aid and I might be disabled too, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be pushed around by a racist, ableist, you know, that's not going to happen anymore. And frankly, screw you if you think that's going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) And I have had people within the disabled community try and walk all over me thinking that they're going to assert themselves on top of me. I've had people try and do that before, thinking that they know more than me. And it seems to be always a white person within the disabled community doing this. Always. It's never, ever another person of color it's always a white person every time so that's something I've taken note of so I don't know take that for what you will that's (laughs) just been my observation have you found any differences in how western culture versus asian perspectives on disability or has it been more or less similar Yes, there's actually huge differences I have found. And I can only speak from my expertise. But from what I've seen in Western culture, there seems to be this strange defeatist feeling when it comes to disability. So there's this weird feeling of like, when you're disabled, there's nothing left for you. There's this eugenicist like feeling of you're a burden on either your family or the state or the government. You can either not work or you can either work very little. So the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the guidelines and everything for that as far as how much money you're given, how you get the benefits, all of that stuff, none of that has changed since it was implemented in 1989. I don't know if people realize that, but that none of that has been changed since. Yeah. Which is a problem considering how expensive things are now. Yeah. The price differences, all of that stuff, cost of living. That's a very significant problem. That's a huge issue. And so you become very limited in a lot of ways, which is just not true. That's not true if you're a disabled person. And like I said, for this next part, I'm going to talk about what my expertise is, and that's on Japan. I have a bachelor's degree in Asian studies with a focus in Japanese film specifically. But when I was taking that degree, I took a lot of classes on Japan and Japanese culture. But for this bit of knowledge, I saw an NHK special about robots. Did you know that in Japan, they have robots that are specifically designed for disabled people? to use in order to work remotely from home. Whoa. That is their intended purpose. They aren't necessarily made for just anybody. They were made for disabled people. And they are made to work with cash registers. You can use them with your own voice to talk to customers through them. They are made to carry food to tables. You can take food orders with them, will work as a hotel attendant. The possibilities are endless. Wow. That's a- yeah. These are the kinds of things 
that are made in Japan for disabled people in order for us to be able to continue to participate in society. Because there's this weird misconception that disabled people are lazy and we aren't lazy. We aren't worthless. We aren't burdens. We want to contribute. I know I do. Speaking from my own experience, one of the worst feelings in the world for me is when I'm stuck in bed or I'm stuck in the house and I'm too weak to be able to do anything. But I have this internal drive to want to do something, anything. And I know that humans are social creatures. We have a desire to want to contribute to our communities in some way. Just because we're disabled doesn't mean that we don't want to still contribute to our communities in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a very interesting contrast between the two approaches. One is of support. How can we help you contribute in a way that you want to contribute versus the Western way, which is, oh, I guess we'll help you, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it makes so much more sense to facilitate. Also, over here in the, in the U.S., we don't have universal health care. In Japan, even if you're just visiting, you get a health insurance card. You get to participate in the healthcare. And I only know that because of what my spouse has told me when they were visiting over there for a short period and they were staying with a host family. One of the things that they were given was a health insurance card. It was temporary, but they were still given it to use in the event that they needed it while they were visiting. Same thing for my ex, who was there when they were doing a student exchange program, when they were studying abroad they were given a health insurance card and they did need to use it while they were there. They told me all about the process of utilizing the health insurance there. Everything was so affordable, including the medicine. Medications were so affordable as opposed to here. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't imagine the amount of people whose anxiety would just go way down when medications are affordable. You can go to the doctor without it being a financial strain. Yeah. It's ridiculous to me knowing that kind of support is available elsewhere when it just does not exist here. Knowing that it exists in the world, but it just doesn't exist here. And this country has the audacity to claim that we're the best. We're not the best. We're not. It's a great big lie. Yeah, I kind of snort laugh when I hear that because I'm like, how many countries have you been in? No. There are some great things about this country, don't get me wrong, but to claim to be the best, that's a stretch. No. Yeah, I do think most people who say that, they haven't been to other countries and they're also not aware of what other countries offer the people that live there. Yeah, it's unfortunate. We live in an ableist society, and personally, I am just beginning to understand how much of an ableist society we are in. I think just like racism, ableism is ingrained in us through daily life from when we were kids. What are some things you wish able-bodied people understood about disability? Or maybe what are some things that people often don't realize are ableist? Something that I wish that able-bodied people understood is that we aren't burdens. We aren't worthless. We are not objects. We are not your inspirations. We are whole people just trying to exist and thrive just like anybody else. That we have a right to be here and that we have a right to exist and thrive just like anyone else who isn't disabled does. That we have a place here, that we do contribute to society in other ways, even if the able-bodied people don't see it or notice it. 
that we matter, that we will always matter, that we are disabled people and that this and that the word disabled isn't a dirty word. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of things in this world that are ableist. It's so ingrained. Like right now, I am sitting in an ableist house at the moment. The lack of ramps, doorways that are too narrow, ramps that exist that are too steep, sidewalks that are blocked by electric poles that somebody decided to plant right in the middle of a sidewalk, parking lots that are at stores So like a shopping mall is required to have disabled parking spaces in their parking lots, but they are not required to have curb cuts. Down the street from me, a couple blocks away, there is a little shopping mall. They have one disabled parking space. They do not have a curb cut. So I have a wheelchair. If I were to park there with my spouse and I wanted to go into a shop, there's no ramp. There's no way for me to get up there to the storefronts. There's literally no way. What's the point? If I were in my wheelchair, I would not be able to make it to the storefront. What the flippity doodah is the point. There are so many storefronts in this town alone where that is the truth. There are so many stores where there is a step and my wheelchair cannot make it up that. Electric wheelchairs cannot make it upstairs. Some manual wheelchairs, if it's the right kind of manual wheelchair, you can do a wheelie, you can pop a wheelie and then you can make it up a stair or two, like up a step or two, kind of, but it's dangerous and you might not be able to do it right. And it's all with practice. So it all just depends. Yeah, like how certain terrains are made. People who decide to park in disabled spots without having a disabled permit in their car. You got to be a real jerk to do that. People do it all the time. They do it all the time. And they do not care. Wow. And I've seen people flaunt it on TikTok. I saw a video of doing that the other day. I saw a video of someone doing it the other day. Flaunting it. Dude was proud of it. Wow. Yeah. Some people are really proud of their ableism. They think it's funny. They think it's really funny. It never ceases to amaze me how much ignorance there is out there. People using the R word is another one. And then thinking that it's perfectly okay to use the R word. There's this whole weird nuance of trying to reclaim the R word, which is okay, if you're wanting to reclaim it for yourself and use it for yourself, that's one thing. But then when you're trying to use it and call other people that, not okay. The problem with trying to reclaim it is the fact that it's still heavily used as a slur all around the world against people with mental deficits of all kinds. It's extremely heavily debated on whether or not that's even a word that can be reclaimed at this time or if it ever should be or could be reclaimed because of how heavily it's used still as a slur. Like Maybe in certain spaces you can where people know what it means, but out into the world where a lot of people are still using it in the hurtful way that could lead to a lot of confusion. Yeah, and it causes so much harm and so much damage. And I'm one of those people that likes to operate on causing the least amount of harm if you know that word is going to cause people harm why why would you even like why even go there you know like Mm -hmm. that's that's where my brain goes yeah that makes sense why cause unnecessary harm when you could just use another word exactly why do you even words exactly like why do you even need to use it if you don't need to at the end of the day it's not necessary 
Yeah, I'm glad to see that conversations around disability are becoming more common. I don't know if it's just where I hang on TikTok, but it just seems like there's a lot more conversations about it now. And I think even in corporate spaces, I've been seeing stuff on LinkedIn. And so I love to see that we're all learning. Well, it needs to happen. These conversations have to be happening, especially now. They should have been happening a long time ago, but especially now with the current climate, what's been going on the last several years, we are constantly being forgotten about. And when you're someone like me, where you've got the double hit of being Asian and disabled, you're double forgotten about. You're left behind in both ways because I don't feel safe walking outside by myself because A, my immune system is garbage and B, because I exist while Asian. And my neighbors are super racist because I'm outside. I you know I have to wear a mask because of my immune system and because of the whole people slinging around things because people still do in my town with the whole Kung flu nonsense. People see me walking around with my Asian eyes wearing a mask and I worry that someone's going to attack me if I'm outside by myself. Yeah. So I need to have a buddy with me. I can't go around by by myself. Yeah. It's too dangerous for me to walk around by myself, which is horrific and awful. And it's ridiculous. You would think that in somewhere like Portland, that would not be the case, but it is. And that's another misnomer. Portland is ridiculously racist. And that's something that I really wish that more people knew is that this city is ridiculously passive aggressive. It is. And they hide it well. In books that talk about the history of white supremacy in the United States, Oregon gets its own chapter where other states don't. That's something that I think people really need to know and understand. Oregon has a long history of intense white supremacy and racism. It still does. The scary thing about Oregon and with Portland specifically is Mm -hmm. that if you were to go walking in my neighborhood, you would see a lot of allyship type things like Black Lives Matter signs, coexist bumper stickers, pride flags. All of that is performative. And that's something that I think a lot of people really need to keep in mind because my family has been hate crimed. One of my nieces, who is Black, was harassed by an older white neighbor because she was outside with her manual kick scooter. A bunch of other kids were outside playing with their kick scooters, bikes, and motorized cars. When she was outside playing too, neighbor lady came up and told her that she was that she needed to stop playing with her scooter on the road because she was ruining the road. She didn't talk to anybody else. She didn't talk to any of the other kids. Just my niece. Wow. Oh my God. Just her. No one else. And they still think that they're allies. Uh-huh. Yeah. That does not track. No, it doesn't. Yeah. I've got some problems with this city. Likes to think that, oh, keep Portland weird. Oh, Portland's so progressive. Yeah. No. This city has a lot of work to do. The city is not what it likes to think that it is. Yeah. Speaking of that, what does being an ally mean to you? An ally to me is someone who is willing to listen and to support their marginalized friends when they're in need the most. 
if they're right there to speak up, to stand up, to throw themselves in the line of fire and make way for the voices of marginalized people to be heard, make room for the faces of marginalized people to be seen, then that's what an ally is. An ally doesn't speak for or speak over a marginalized person or community. And an ally most certainly doesn't go around trying to harass members of marginalized communities either. That is not what they do. I would also add on that ally isn't a title that you can ever claim for yourself. That is a title that you earn. And I cannot stress that enough. I cannot emphasize that enough. You cannot ever claim the title of ally. That is something you earn, which is another reason why I have an issue with the ally pride flag and why I don't think that allies should get a pride flag because it's not something that you should have. It should not be a thing because that's not, you should not get brownie points. You should not get a gold star. Yay, good for you for doing the minimum. Honestly, if we're going to get down to brass tacks here, being an I, and this is a conversation that I feel like a lot of people might not be ready for, but I'm going to say it anyway. Being an ally at the end of the day is being a good person. Being an ally is not being an asshole, really. An ally is seeing a bad thing happening and not being part of the bystander effect. Being an ally is seeing, oh, there's horrible things happening. I'm going to go and help. Yeah, I think people struggle with being an ally is not a label, it's a practice. Exactly, which is why I also have a problem when I see ally listed in people's bios online. Really? Are you though? I have to ask that. That's always the thing that happens in my brain every time I see that in someone's bio. Or are you saying that to make yourself feel better or to make yourself look good? Because you're right, it is a practice. It's just like being an anti-racist. It's a practice, not a title. Yeah, and I think people struggle with that distinction because they don't realize that distinction could mean the difference between you being safe and you being very not safe and potentially unalived. Because for them, it's like, oh, of course I'm an ally. Okay, but to what extent are you an ally? (laughs) In which situations will you choose to stand up and in which situations will you choose to walk away? It's a complicated thing for people to wrap their heads around. I think most people want to believe that they would do the right thing in the situation, but that doesn't always happen. Yeah, exactly. I agree. And you're right. Yeah. Unfortunately, if we want to get really dark with this, in the real world, it can mean the difference between being safe and being so unsafe that we could end up. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I recently learned this, the new statistic for the United States in anti-Asian hate crimes is it's now up 361%. Oh my God. Yeah, that's where we're at now. And so people need to understand that when it comes to being hate crimed in this country, Asian Americans, we're in danger. I don't know how much louder we need to be about this. Hmm. 361% is a significant number. That's large. Yeah. It keeps hitting higher. It's not going down. And the more people are othering us, making those really disgusting videos, 
the lateral violence, the racism, the mocking of all of our cultures. The more that we are othered and seen as weird, the worse it gets for us. And these microaggressions turn into bigger things. For some reason, people don't see how these turn into hate crimes, into like big hate crimes, but they do. Yeah. They do. Even for me, it's hard to wrap my head around the fact that happens to people who look like me just for looking like me. You know, I never worried about that before the pandemic. And now when I go somewhere and I notice that I'm the only Asian person, I, I get worried. And my spouse doesn't like me going anywhere where we don't know who's going to be there by myself because we don't know if it's going to be an all white space. We're not comfortable with that. Yeah. And I'm in California. <laughs> and the scariest part about a lot of these crimes is that all that these people were doing were existing. They weren't doing anything. Literally, this might seem excessive, but on my phone, I have an album full of videos and pictures and names. We're talking, when I say videos, I mean like surveillance videos of anti-Asian hate crimes. I literally carry these with me because they are my motivation for my activism. Mm -hmm. They are my reminder. Their faces are my reminder for why I do this, for why I keep going, for why I can't give up. And why I will never stop talking about this. Yeah. Why I refuse to be silenced and why I will keep stomping with my voice because <laughs> they deserve justice. They deserve yeah. to have their stories heard. They deserve to continue to be talked about. And our community deserves better. We deserve to be respected. We deserve to have our stories heard. We deserve to have our voices heard. We don't deserve this treatment that we keep having. We don't deserve this. We should all just deserve to exist in peace. Why is that such a complicated thing for people? We should have every right to just peacefully walk across the street. We should have the ability to wait for a subway and not yeah. have to worry. We should have the ability to sit on a park bench and not have to worry about it. We should have the ability to walk down the street with a group of friends and not have to worry about getting assaulted. We should have the ability to just hang out with friends and not have to worry. We should be, feel safe within our own apartment. Yeah. We should feel safe delivering food while we're on the job riding a bike and not have to worry. And yes, I, the things I am listing are exact scenarios where Asian Americans have been killed or assaulted. Yep. It's so hard to wrap our heads around. And I think that might also be why some people who are outside the Asian community, it's even harder for them to wrap their heads around it because it sounds so absurd that it does happen, but it is happening. We need to keep speaking out and making sure that our voices are heard. Give them the Masaru stomp. I plan to keep doing it until the day I no longer have breath. I plan to keep on doing it. All right. To wrap this up, we're going to go to our rapid fire section. Oh boy. Okay. I will do my best. <laughs> what was the first language you learned? English. What language do you speak with your parents? Also English. <laughs> what is your favorite material to work with? Oh, I'm going to say, oh goodness, merino wool. Ooh, what's an Asian food that you should like but don't? Oh, that one's hard. I should like <laughs> don't. I love so many different Asian foods. Oh, that's what, that's so difficult. 
Yeah, oh, that's, that's a so hard difficult. question. Oh, that yeah. is so hard. Oh, no. I love so many. That's so hard. Oh, I don't know. All right. A pass. Oh, I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Um, what's an Asian food that you'll never get tired of? Oh, that's easy. Miso soup. Specifically, the instant miso soup with the paste from Marukome. Gonna have to give that a try. I love miso soup too. So. It's so good. The Marukome instant miso is so good. I have it every morning for breakfast. It's my same food. I watched your video the other day making miso soup. And I think I realized that I've been making miso soup all wrong. It's so good. I know how to make it from scratch too. I know how to make my own dashi. It's yeah. so good. But it's a lot of work for me. Yeah. For me, it's a lot of work. Awesome. Before we let you go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you and maybe where they can find your fiber art store? Yeah, I don't have it pulled up. I have a really bad memory for web pages. Right, but... just, I'll put it in the show notes then. Okay, yeah, I do have, I think it's pronounced coffee, spelled K-O-F-I. I do have a coffee shop. It's my fiber art store. And I have an Instagram and a TikTok, both under the name Masaru KitKat. And I do realize that KitKat is a candy bar, but it's that's added on there because it's the nickname that my spouse has for me. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a treat chatting with you. Yeah, thank you. This yeah. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. I loved talking about all these things. This was wonderful. It was an honor being here today. Oh, it was an honor having you. I love what you're putting out on TikTok. And I've learned a lot from your videos, from Edmund's videos. So yeah, we're just doing what we can to amplify voices. Yay. I really love what you guys are doing. This podcast is wonderful. I just listened to Cece's episode the other day with my spouse and we both got very emotional. It was so good. Thank you. Yeah, that was such a great conversation. And Ari and I have talked about this so much. All the conversations were really good. We learned so much from each of them. It's been great having a space where we can explore that Yeah, I just love it. Your guys' podcast is so important and just words I don't think are strong enough to express just how amazingly important your podcast is. Thank you so much. That means a lot to us. Yeah. Here are our takeaways for today's episode. Number one, if you're a victim of discrimination, you do not owe closure to your oppressor. You do not have to suppress your own feelings in order to make them feel better about what they did. Number two, Disabled is not a dirty word. It's just a fact. Talking about disability should not be a taboo. Not talking about disability keeps the disabled community invisible and makes it harder for them to access the support they deserve. Number three, the way we view disability in the West is only one of many possible ways to do so, and a better system is possible for all stakeholders. In Japan, for example, instead of viewing disabled people as a liability, they use technology to empower disabled people to work and to continue to be an integral part of their community. Number four, despite the Americans with Disabilities Act, the accessibility standards are not comprehensive enough to ensure access. Builders will often meet the minimum ADA requirements and neglect to add essential features such as curb cuts if they are not required to do so. Number five, Anti-Asian hate crime has been on the rise since the pandemic, and many of us, myself included, do not feel safe in spaces where we are the only Asian person or the only person of color. Number six, even if you live in a community that is deemed liberal or progressive, you cannot assume that there isn't racism. 
Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles are not immune to racism. If you want to be true allies, ask your friends about their experiences and ask them how you can be of help. Most of us will not tell you unless you ask because we don't always know how you'll react. And finally, being an ally is a title that you earn through action, not by association. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Nuances podcast. If you did, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch on Instagram or TikTok at Nuances Pod, or you can leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, whichever platform you're using to listen today. Thank you so much for spending this time with us, and we hope you have a great holiday season. 